Welcome to the Xterra Podcast. I'm Tom Patton. The Xterra mission is to explore and discuss the business of space and its effect on the national and global economy as well as life on Earth. How does what happens in space affect your life every day? That's what we're exploring on the Xterra website as well as on this podcast. My guest is Michael Listner, founder of Space Law and Policy Solutions. And Michael, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Let's start out with some of the basics. What is the basics of space law and how is it enforced if it is at all? Well, space law basically started customarily in 1957 when the Soviets launched uh, Sputnik 1. Uh, we created what, and by create by launching that satellite into orbit and overpassing the territory of other other nations, other states, they basically solidified this idea of free access to outer space and what we call customary international law. But in as space started, as space started to become more prolific, uh, the countries got together, and the U.S. in particular, Eisenhower decided, you know what, we need a new treaty to basically you know, solidify some of these principles of outer space into, you know, an actual treaty like the Antarctic Treaty, which the Outer Space Treaty is really uh, loosely based on. So back in 1969, they signed the, uh, no, excuse me, 1967, a uh, bunch of states got together, they signed, signed the Outer Space Treaty, which is considered the foundational document for outer outer space. Now it's, the Outer Space Treaty, uh, depending on who you talk to, people say, well, this is, you know, this is the binding you know, central authority for all uh, for all space law. And what I tell people is like, no, if you really read the Outer Space Treaty and if you look at the negotiations that went on, the idea of the Outer Space Treaty is to kind of bring the states together to get some agreement on how to, how to use space, how to utilize space, but it also respects state sovereignty. In other words, the, the, the UN has no, the UN has no what we call sovereign authority or authority to dictate or authority to enforce these, these principles. That is basically left up to the states and their own political will to basically, what we what I really call is um, voluntary compliance. And this kind of gets into the whole spectrum of international law in itself, because international law is, well, depending on who you talk to, myself included, I don't think it's really what you could call law because it really lacks the ability to have an enforcement mechanism. It's more political. It's more, we agree, you know, we agree we're going to abide by these principles the way we interpret them. And of course, the way these principles are interpreted is based on state interest on, you know, what, what is in my national interest on how to interpret this. And this has gone along for a long time, but however, we've seen a shifting of how, you know, law is made in outer space to more to what we call domestic laws or state laws. And that really started with the commercial uh, with in 1984 with the Commercial Space Launch Act, which which uh, the Reagan administration actually encouraged, which gives these private non-government, what we call, what I call non-governmentals, the authority, you know, the ability to go out and, and perform space. Now, this idea of performing commercial space is actually in the Outer Space Treaty. It tells states, okay, you can let, you can let your, your private citizens perform space activities, but you got to do, but you got to authorize and continually supervise them. And those words are probably the most powerful words um, when it when it comes to commercial space and the one to evoke the most concern and fear in space operators. With the fast pace of technology, the way it's moving forward and all of the strides made in space commerce, has the law kept up? No, and I and I'm of the there. There are really two thought two thoughts on how this should work. People, there, there's one thought saying we got to make all these rules and regulations ahead of time. 
So it'll be in place. So I kind of like putting in a highway, you know, a, a large, large super highways, even though I may have a rural proper population with cars, you may not, not actually use all that bandwidth or all that, all that regulatory authority. But the other side, my, the side that I prescribe most to is saying, look, it's all space law is always going to be a little bit behind. That way you're not dictating to technology and commerce how it should develop. In other words, you're not putting commerce in a box. You're letting it go. You're letting it go and do its thing. And then when appropriate, come in and say, look, we got to pull back on this. We're going to put a little bit of regulation on you um, because we think it's necessary. So they're really there. They're, those are those true groups that are that are consistently, uh, how can you say, arguing with each other or, or in competition with each other. And it's all really, um, I hate to say it's a matter of philosophy, but I guess it's the best term I can come up with right now. So it sounds like what you're saying is that like a lot of the law, it's reactionary as opposed to being proactive. Somebody says there ought to be a law. And well, it's, it's, well it's a matter about the, there ought to. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, you there ought to be a law. But again, space activities are still so so much in their infancy right now. We really don't know how things are going to play out and to say, well, I'm going to regulate this in advance really says you can foresee in the future how this is going to work out. And really what we've seen in industry and in, in, in a Western free democracy or capitalist society is that industry does take it does take twists and turns. And you can't really accurately map out ahead of time where it's going to go. You can think, well, I might see, you know, this might be the way it does and, and create a broad set of, of guidelines. But it's it's really difficult to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to put these number of restrictions in and you're just going to have to comply with them whether you want to or not. Give us a little bit about your background. Uh, started, uh, graduated law school, wow, almost 21, 22 years ago, uh, was very interested in international law. My first paper, my, my paper in international law was on, on this topic of space law. Um, it fed a, I guess you could say an interest, a lot lifelong interest into space. I, it really got me an A in international law and it actually got me published for the first time, uh, as a law student. And from there, I just basically started taking up, you know, watching things, just, you know, making my, you know, just thinking about it a lot. And there was really a long train of thought from say 2001, when I graduated all the way up to 2011, when I really started this company, I started really writing about this in earnest. So, I mean, it, it's been a long process. I'm still thinking about it. And actually I think about this every day and people say, well, you can't, how can you think about it every day? Well, I do. I get up in the morning and I think about it. And you know what? I've, I've changed my mind a lot on things because, well, geopolitics changed. The world changes and the world evolves. And I think with that, my, my thoughts evolve as well. So I'm not really hard set into say, well, this is the way it's got to be. It's a matter of, you know, you got to, you got to watch and see, you got to watch and see. And, and, and I like to I like to think, well, I got a, I got a brain, I use it and I think about it and, and thinking about these every day, I'm always coming up with new nuances. So yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very involved into this It's a big part of my life. Um, it's becoming a bigger part of my, my legal practice right now. And uh, I, again, I think it's really the wave of the future and I'm really pleased to be able to, you know, become, well, some people call a pioneer. I, I would think that's a, that's uh, not a good term, but basically somebody who's actually creating new ideas and trying, you know, pointing the direction to go in. When you talk about the regulations and such, and I'm wondering if the realm of space law goes as far as working with organizations like the FAA, when they're doing the environmental assessments in Boca Chica and those kinds of things, is that part of what it is that you do, or are you more focused on satellites in orbit? More focused on I'm more focused on what happens when you get out of, when when you get out of the atmosphere and get into orbit and get into space. 
Um, we don't get into the whole thing where, where space begins. That's that, that, that that's a big can of worms that would go beyond. I could we could talk two hours on that alone. But uh, I focus more on what happens when we get into space as opposed to when we are on space. But of course, I got to think of, uh, I do think about these idea with the FAA with the licensing process. You got to think about what what happens when you're in the atmosphere and when you re-enter the atmosphere as well. So yeah, that's a little bit of my thought. That's a little bit of my thought process as well. And I got to consider uh, environmental, which is a big which is a big part of when the rocket's actually on the launch pad. Um, I got to think of uh, you know I got to think about you know the other other nuances, the, the politics involved in as well. So, you know, I talk about, I, we talk about space law, people put it aside as this one big area that, that stands by itself, but really it merges with a lot of other areas of law, even more so now that's becoming more prolific in the commercial sector. With the Russians threatening to pull out of the ISS and then rising tensions with China as well, can space law be upheld um, amongst all of our nations? Well, I think it's, again, I think it's very, yeah, space law for the most part is an international creature, and there is this idea in enforcement and whether or not a state thinks it's in their national interest to follow a precept or based on what what their interpretation of it is. And I'm going to use a terrestrial example just to just to explain this in a sense, and that that comes with the People's Republic of China in the nine dashed line area of the South China Sea. Now, the PRC is a signatory to the UN uh, Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS. And one of the things UNCLOS says, you, you shall not claim sovereign territory in, you know, in the middle of the ocean. That's roughly what it says. The PRC has, has, has basically, in my opinion, ignored that and is actually trying to change this to what I mentioned before is customary international law. The same thing with outer space. They're, they're, they, we have these principles. However, as things start becoming more prolific and more there's more competition between the U.S., the PRC, and the Russian Federation, for for example, uh, these laws are going to change through, I think, what, through customary international law. We have these things called the Artemis Accords, which were promulgated back in 2020, in which I think seven, I think it's we're, we're at 18 signatories right now. They provide guidelines. They, they kind of provide an outline of what you know future space rules, space um, rules of the road, guidelines, et cetera, may may will be based on, but they're not really hard and fast rules in a sense, because again, we're not there yet. So do I expect competition? Yes. Um, we, we literally are in a great power competition with, uh, with, with the PRC and the Russian Federation, and they have a different worldview of what, what the world should look like, what the rules should be. So in the, as time moves on, uh, we will see, we will see pushback on who, on whose view of the rule of law actually prevails in outer space. You commented on a post on our website that was titled On Orbit Satellite Fuel Sale Agreement Signed, and you were critical of the deal between Astroscale and OrbitFab. What, what were you critical about? Critical is probably a harsh word, questioning it. Just, just for okay. the simple fact that under this idea of Article 6 that I talked about in the Outer Space Treaty, non-governmentals, private entities are allowed to perform space activities, but they have to be authorized and supervised by their by their government. So part of that authorization under our under our form of government requires Congress to actually write legislation saying to the FAA, we per, we we permit you to authorize these these activities these types of space activities. Now right now the only the only authorization the FAA really has is to authorize these space tourism flights and commercial satellite launches. They don't. There is nothing that spe- there isn't specific authorization for say. Um, 
fuel stations in outer space or space debris removal. Congress hasn't authorized that yet. Now, there are exceptions. For example, uh, Northrop Grumman has been testing their rendezvous and proximity spacecraft. They have two of them right now performing functions in, geo, in the geo belt with Intelsat satellites. And they really had to do a lot of do a lot of uh, bureaucratic twister in order for the actual the FAA to say, okay, we can authorize it because they don't have specific authorization from Congress. Now, there was a Supreme Court decision called West Virginia versus EPA that came down back at the end of, I think it was June. And basically that reinforced the idea that, look, federal agencies don't have the, don't have the authority to create regulations outside of the scope of the authority that Congress gives them. In other words, Congress has to tell, has to tell the agency, you are authorized to regulate these, author, regulate these types of activities in this way. So go and do it. And then so this whole idea of separation of powers that Congress has to legislate it first before the federal agencies can actually regulate it and, and or license it. We're talking with Michael Listner, founder of Space Law and Policy on the Xterra podcast. Take a moment right now and click on subscribe to be sure you don't miss any of our podcasts or if you're watching on YouTube, any of the videos from Xterra, the Journal of Space Commerce. Michael, in, in, is contract law valid, necessary, and enforceable when it comes to space activities? Well, sure. Contract you know, contract is merging with space law. Well, if I say I want to launch a satellite, I can uh, not only do I have to get a license from. Well, let's use an example. I'm going to I'm going to launch a communication satellite. So because spectrum because communication spectrum is going to be the primary use of that, I'm going to have to go to the FCC first, and I'm going to have to get a license from them. And they're going to make me, you know, talk about what frequencies I'm going to use, um, and they're also going to talk to me how I'm going to mitigate my how I'm going to mitigate a dead spacecraft. In other words, when it when it gets to the end of life, how am I going to deal with that so it doesn't get so it doesn't clutter up that geo slot? And those are very very sparse slots. Um, and then I'm going to, of course, get the FAA and get get a launch license. And of course, I'm, if I'm going to put a camera on there, I'm going to have to go to NOAA and get permission to you know take pictures of the Earth. However, outside of that, I'm going to have to build the satellite. Which is through a commercial company, which requires a contract to sign with with a satellite manufacturer. I'm going to have to have it launched, so I'm going to, have to go to one of the launch providers, and I'm going to have to get a launch contract with them and and, and pay for that. And then I'm going to have to get other permits and and things like that. And I have to contract maybe with other people, other vendors to actually provide support for actually you know getting this spacecraft from point A to the launch site in order to put on put on top of the rocket and launch. And of course, I'm going to have to sign a lease with 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 a the launch with the launch center, which may be, for example, down at Cape Canaveral, that 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 is under the purview of the Space Force. So I'm going to have to have an agreement with them as well to to launch from their facility. So contract law becomes part of space law even more so in the sense of commercial actors because commer contracts are very are, are basically the lifeblood of commercial activities uh, throughout throughout the U.S. and throughout the world. More even even in the government, there are contracts. Of course, you got to you got to do it the government's way because that's the way the government likes to do things. <laughs> you know, you said something very interesting that I was not aware of, and that is you have to get permission from NOAA to take pictures of the Earth from a satellite. Wouldn't the yes. Earth be in public domain? Well, <laughs> it's, 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 it's a whole idea of remote sensing is under the purview of the notion the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric administration and basically they said if you if you're ever going to put a camera on a spacecraft and you're going to you know go into orbit and there's even a remote chance that you're going to go you that that the earth will be captured in that you need to get our okay first um there was a, there was a hollywood a few a few years ago uh spacex was going to do a launch and they had a rocket cam on there but they had to shut it down because noah noah caught up and said oh wait a minute 
nobody talked to us about this license because that rocket's going to kind of get above the atmosphere and you're going to see the curvature of the earth but you know spacex didn't get a license for it so they had to shut down that particular rocket cam and now they have to go to get a NOAA and get a license every time they want to do a rocket cam and this goes for and this and this goes for you know ula as well if they want to for their rocket cams as well does esa and other international launch providers or other countries have similar laws where you have to go to a government authority um, if you want to take pictures of the Earth and engage in Earth observation. Yeah, pretty much. If you're going, to, if you're going to, if you're, for example, if you're a U.S. company, you want to launch on a European provider, for example, Ariane Space uh, or an Ariane rocket, you're probably going to have. Um, well, it depends. It's going to depend whether or not you're going to launch under under their jurisdiction or not. For example. Um, I have a set, I'm going to build a satellite, but I'm going to contract with a European country to actually build it and launch it. And I'm going to launch it under their jurisdiction. In other words, they're going to be what we call a launching state. So I'm going to have to jump through all their hoops. And if I'm going to put a camera on my satellite launched under their jurisdiction, I'm going to have to get their permission. But also because I'm a U.S. citizen, I might have to come to know one too and say, look, I'm going to do this. We're going to need your permission as well. Uh, it's what we call... Uh, kind of a long article. Article six has a long arm statute. In other words, if I'm a if I'm a for, if I'm a citizen of the U.S. but I'm going to another state like Europe or New Zealand, New Zealand's a good example because there is a U.S. company launching out of New Zealand. Mm -hmm. If I'm going to do that, I need the permission and the blessing of the FAA, NOAA, maybe some cases the FCC, in order to launch there, and I need New Zealand's blessing as well. What do governments need to do to create a legal framework for space commerce to flourish? Uh, well, again, depending who you talk to, I mean, in my opinion, it's got to be, you know, you, you've got to come in, you've got to offer, you've got to offer incentives for, you know, a favorable economic environment. You've got to, you've definitely got to offer a favorable regulatory environment. In other words, am I going to need a room full of lawyers in order to process all the paperwork in order to get a launch? Or am I going to be able to, am I going to have to maybe staff of four or five lawyers to process, you know, the paperwork to get the same result. Um, that's a big. That's a big consideration. And actually, it's one that the commercial industry has been very critical about, saying that you know we have you know we we are really concerned about the U.S. system getting too complicated because well there are other people other states we go to that are going to be less burdensome for us to actually launch from. So that's a consider that that that's a huge consideration right there. Another one is geopolitical, um, you know, geopolitical. I mean, bottom line is, you know, when, when you launch from another country, you are under the protection of their state. It's kind of like flagging a ship. Mm -hmm. you're, in, you're under their protection. And the, the question is, if something happens up in space between your satellite and the satellite belonging to another country, are you, you know, the question is, are you going, are you going to project your political influence to protect my activities or are you going to throw me under the bus? Or do you have the political strength or the political, what I call the political juice to actually, you know, project uh, influence to actually protect my my activities in outer space as well. How big of an impediment is that to smaller startup companies that want to get engaged in things like Earth observation and getting satellites in orbit uh, with so many CubeSats and, and microsats and all this communication that's going on? How do they how do they navigate that legal framework? By hiring lawyers that are experienced in it. I mean, you 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 book with companies like SpaceX and ULA, and they have huge staffs of, of, of attorneys that, that specialize and just focus right on this. Um, there was a, I think it was SPD2 that was promulgated during the last administration, which basically told the FAA, you know, you'd streamline the licensing process. Well, you know, they did it. In my opinion, they really didn't go far enough. I was, I was more say, you know, you look, you throw, throw it all away and just start from scratch. Uh, but they basically 
and there they basically took a lot of comments from the commercial space industry and tried to streamline it. It's still very burdensome in the sense of you know you still need a lot you know still need a lot of lawyers to actually you know get through the paperwork and get jump through all the hoops. Now there are other states like New Zealand which are just starting off in the space, and their 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 hurdles from as far as bureaucracy goes is a little less than say the United States. So in some cases they may be favorable. Uh, there are other states like the United Arab Emirates who have their own domestic space law, and they are in the process of actually promulgating regulations for commercial space launch as well. Now, depending on how burdensome or how unburdensome their laws are or, or their regulations are, they may be very attractive and actually take business from uh, potential business or um, how can you say take take industry or, or encourage industry to come over to them as, as opposed to uh, launching under the auspices of the United States. So, I mean, it, again, it all depends on what the government wants to, what a, what a government wants to do in terms of making the regulations difficult, whether it be light touch or very burdensome. And again, the outer space treaty doesn't tell, doesn't tell states, this is how you're going to regulate them. It basically says, okay, you have the, you, you have the ability to authorize and supervise. We'll leave it up to you how to figure out how to do it. We don't care. And that is that gets back to the idea that the aerospace treaty isn't about creating a central authority. It's about it's about basically setting principles and allowing the states to do their thing. We haven't talked about this, but as you look forward into exploration of the moon and then at some point Mars, they hope, where does the where do the what are the legal issues that are being discussed now about uh, different countries colonizing other bodies colonizing the moon yeah well the whole issue of colonization well is probably a bad word anyways and i i shy away from just because colon the colonial times just have you know left leave people with a bad taste in their mouth uh, i'll, I'll you give know, you that. centuries of that settlement uh, the one of the words we try and use more often is settlement again i'm not trying to be political here as much as you know trying to nuance new words in but the idea of settlement even settlement i mean i see this a lot with a lot of uh, non-governmental organizations promote the idea of space settlement the Outer Space Treaty really didn't address them. They weren't really, when they, when they built it, they really weren't concerned about that. So that's a factor right there. The Outer Space Treaty doesn't cover that. So if, a, say, the US, U.S. has, well, Musk wants to go to Mars and colonize, excuse me, settle it and mm -hmm. uh, go and basically retire and said die there. Um, <laughs> he He is going to have to, but before he can do that, before he can launch a rocket from U.S. soil, he's got to get the permission of the U.S. government to do that. And the government can follow his actions, activities all the way to Mars. And the idea is he's got to, the U.S. government's got to look and say, look, this wasn't really covered in the outer space treaty. How are how are our international uh, neighbors going to react to this? I mean, this, these are things they have to take, actually take in consideration before licensing. Uh, you know, is there a nation, any national security implications to this? I mean, these are all things that we're going to, have to do. And I think one of the big things is, you know what, we're going to have to go out and have a discussion with our other with other international uh states and basically talk to them and say look this is what what one of our citizens wants to do we'd like to support it what do you think to try and get some sort of and here's an, the ugly word of consensus that you know this idea of settlement is not a bad thing so again settlement really isn't something that in the current policy environment that's actually considered uh, both at the outer space treaty and also at the domestic level i mean we see space policies come out a lot but none of them talk about settlement and really until space policies, national space policies start talking about settlement and Congress starts talking about settlement, it's probably, it's probably going to be something that isn't going to happen anytime soon. What, in your opinion, are the biggest two or three issues facing space commerce right now? Definitely regulation. Um, I know today, there's, I think it's today, there's supposed to be a meeting of the National Space Council. 
And they probably have this, and from what I understand, they have this big idea on this new regulatory framework, which I really don't know if they have the authority to actually implement, but this is something, you know, commerce is going to look at. How much, how much are we going to be regulated? What's going to be regulated? I mean, space, are they going to start regulating space debris saying you have to, you know, you have to clean, you know, basically make sure your, your mess is cleaned up. And actually industry has taken the initiative uh, uh, on that topic in particular. So the regulatory environment is, is a big one. Funding is uh, finance is a big one. I mean, who bottom line is, you know, ever since the Apollo era, when we hear in the cold war competition with the Soviets, it's been about the government hiring corporations to build government spacecraft and the money has just been there. Now the paradigm is shifting where actually the, the funding is trying to get more into private funding and getting away from government. Although right now, and it's kind of really a tug of war uh, because we want to break away into this private area, but damn, that money, that, that private money, that government money is still there and it's still good and it's lucrative. So we still want to hold on to that. I think a good, I think a good point is SLS. SLS is purely a government owned rocket as opposed sure. to a privately owned rocket. And you have Elon Musk who wants to use Starship to actually go to the moon and Mars. But here we have a government, a government in a sense is competing, even though they have, they have, a, they have more leverage, uh, they are competing with say private. Um, and I think the third one, the third, the third top one would be public perceptions. I, I see a really, I see a really bad public perception, especially with, since uh, these billion, you know, these Billionaires have been starting to launch rockets on what we what I call space tourism or what I call joy rides. That has how it's really basically this idea of space tourism is stigmatizing uh, commercial space activities. And I think we need to adjust our laws and classify some some of these people differently. For example, there was actually a private a private space mission to the uh, International Space Station last mm -hmm. year. And I think there's going to be another there's another one. There's a second one scheduled. Yeah. Yeah. And basically, they're actually going to go up to the ISS. They're going to pay NASA for it and they're going to do actual research. So really, they're not tourists. So they don't they don't fall, fall into this category of space flight participants. So maybe it's time for Congress to create another category where actually they get the where these people who are performing these uh, these functions actually get recognized as what I call non-governmental astronauts. And and basically what Cong and basically have co Congress say, hey, these are non-government astronauts, and oh, by the way, they get we we consider them to have the same protections as traditional government astronauts as well, which would be a huge leap in, forward in international law, in my opinion. You mentioned the regulations in the last administration. Um, how, how challenging is the the tug of war, to use your term, when the administrations change or when Congress changes? Because well, obviously, the next one might have a completely different thought about what what space ought to be yeah exactly and, that, and that's true the the perception of, of of space and how it how it you know how it should be um exploited or used is basically is going to change from administration to administration um i think that's very prominent in national security space how do we approach uh national security in outer space uh, between this the last administration and this administration it's very it's a very different approach um the same thing with the emphasis on commercial for example during the last administration Policy was very heavily weighted in commercial space activities, and science basically took, in my opinion, a, sec a second chair to to explore to uh, commercial use and exploitation. However, with this administration, the philosophies changed, with exploration and science coming back on top, and in my opinion, commercial space getting basically taking a lower tier. So, and this this is kind of a side. Kind kind of a detriment, I would say, to our system of government, to our elect our elected system of government is. 
ideas on how space is going to be is going to change. But Congress does have a lot of authority in this because Congress can basically put down in stone through legislation saying this is the way it should be and this is the way it should be for the next several years. Um, and even a president is going to have a hard time overturning a, a succeeding president is going to have a hard time overturning a dictated Congress. And it's actually going to take a, uh, an act of Congress to overthrow it. Let me let me make give you an example. Um, the Space Force was put together under the last administration, and a lot of people were hemming and hawing that, oh, this administration is going to arbitrarily kill the Space Force. Well, they can't do that because only Congress can create a branch of uh, branch of military branch of service, and only Congress can take away that service. The president cannot do that arbitrarily, which gets back to this whole idea of regulations, that, that Supreme Court case I mentioned, where they basically said, you know, in so many words, uh, federal agencies can't arbitrarily regulate outside of the authority that Congress gives them. What's the uh, best scenario you see over the next quarter century in space law? And then what's your nightmare scenario? Best, best scenario, we get more we get more state focused, what, what I call bottom up approaches to international law, where we make rules as we go along and ba- and say and as we learn lessons, we basically and make mistakes and we're going to make mistakes. Um, we start we start saying, OK, we've got we got to tighten things up here with some rules or guidelines and regulations and do that at the state level, as opposed to the central, these the centralized international um, bureaucracies. The worst case scenario is this international bureaucracy and to the point where states actually come in and say, well, we'll give up some of our sovereign authority to this international body, which essentially says we're, we're telling this international body you have authority over us. Us individual states in certain regards to outer space, which could in some circumstances be unconstitutional in my opinion, but would definitely create a nightmare situation because it it would and really be inconsistent with the Outer Space Treaty. One more question, Michael, and we asked this of all of our guests to look at, if you might, over the next 10 to 15 years in the realm of space commerce and tell us what you see. Foggy crystal ball, to be honest with you. I don't know. (laughs) There's a lot of people, you know, I, and and I and I really don't get into these idea of grand um, visions of outer space. I mean, what, one one vision is are these things called O'Neill colonies, and people are just so vested in the idea of O'Neill colonies that they're not looking and seeing what's happened and seeing how things are going to unfold. You can move. I mean, it's just like with any goal or any project, you can move in a certain direction with with an idea how you think it's going to look, but sometimes it doesn't work out that way, and it turns out totally different. And I think. That's and that's why I say I have a foggy crystal ball, just because I don't know. I don't know how things are going to change geopolitically in the next uh, 10 to 15 years. And it's very hard. And I think from a lawyer standpoint, very imprudent for me to say this is the way things are. I think they're going to look in the next 10 to 15 years. Fair enough. Thank you very much for your time, Michael. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. And thank you for inviting me. That's going to do it for this edition of the Xterra podcast. Check out our YouTube channel. Be sure to click on subscribe so you can stay up to date on developments in space commerce and be notified when we post new videos. You can also get daily space commerce news at XterraJSC.com. And one thing more, be sure to connect with us on LinkedIn and follow us on Twitter at XterraJSC. Until next time, I'm Tom Patton. Thanks for joining us.